Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for tuning in to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. We're excited to speak with Ali Buzari on today's episode. I want to take a moment to mention the Cultured Meat Symposium, a conference about cell-based meat technology happening in San Francisco. We have speakers from Memphis Meats, North American Meat Institute, IndieBio, Stray Dog Capital, Matson, Institute for the Future, and many other companies within the space. Register using the code CMSPODCAST at www.cms18.com. Ali Buzari is a culinary scientist, author, educator, and co-founder of Pilot R&D, a culinary research and development company, and Render, a new food company that collaborates with the best restaurant chefs in the country to reinvent the way food lovers eat. As a chef with a PhD in food biochemistry, Ali has helped to lead the charge in changing the way we think about cooking by teaching and developing curriculum at top universities from Ivy League schools to the Culinary Institute of America, and collaborating with the country's most innovative restaurants, including State Bird Provisions, Benue, 11 Madison Park, The Restaurant at Meadowood, and the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group. Ali has been featured on Forbes and Zagat's 30 Under 30 list as a contributor to Popular Science, Eater, Wired, and a guest expert on NPR, TEDx, and Iron Chef America. His book, Ingredient, Unveiling the Essential Elements of Food, won the 2017 IACP Award for Best Reference Book. Ellie also writes a monthly column, Housemaid, for the San Francisco Chronicle, diving into the behind-the-scenes brilliance of restaurant dishes. Ellie, I'd like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. Thank you, Alex. It's good to be here. Ellie, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in food science. Yeah, my background is a little bit of a strange hybrid. I have always been interested in cooking, uh, I come from a long line, line of family cooks. And uh, in grad school, I, I started pursuing food biochemistry after a good year of thinking that I invented the field of food science. I was a biochem undergrad, and I was cooking in restaurants basically since high school. And I realized bit by bit that my learning curve in the kitchen was faster than it had any right to be because of the insight that I, I had from looking behind the scenes and uh, understanding the fundamental mechanisms at play uh, beneath the surface of food. And so one thing led to another. And as soon as I uh, got into UC Davis for grad school, I ended up teaching part-time at the Culinary Institute of America. From there, I started consulting with some of my favorite chefs and parlayed that into the couple of companies that I started with my colleagues today. Very cool. And so tell us a little bit about uh, Pilot R&D and also Render. So 
Pilot R&D is a company that I founded with uh, three other colleagues of mine, uh, Dana Peck, Kyle Connaughton, and Dan Felder. And we come from some pretty diverse backgrounds, but the thing that we all share is we were all involved in developing, running, and sometimes creating the R&D programs for upper echelon restaurants all over the world. So between us, we worked with the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group, the Momofuku Group, the Fat Duck in the UK, Noma uh, in Copenhagen. We, we were either working directly with these chefs on a day-to-day capacity, or we were on the other end of the red phone when they would have questions about developing something new or troubleshooting something that they'd been working on for a while. And there was a moment when we all realized that that wasn't necessarily just a way of solving problems for chefs in white tablecloth fine dining restaurants. It was an engine for solving food problems, period. Uh, Chefs are probably, I would argue that they are the most adept, ruthless, and open-minded problem solvers that there are in the, in the world of food. And that side of things, there was some culinary creativity. There were some, some brilliant ideas that we are constantly exposed to talking to these uh, types of chefs. But it's not like our, our approach to food is, you should mix all of these esoteric ingredients and come up with really refined, elevated flavor profiles. It was more, how do we work on uh, retail food products, with food service, with startups, with tech companies, with, with food on every scale? by taking some of that aggressive problem-solving approach that we gleaned from working with these Michelin-starred chefs and coupling it with the fundamental principles of food science. The other company that we founded, which is called Render, is an is a, is a outgrowth of our experience with Pilot in that we've now had years of experience launching dozens of new food products a year. And what we wanted to do was create a platform to collaborate with our favorite chef friends out in the industry at prominent restaurants around the U.S. and be in charge of our own product development journey. So on the pilot side, we help other companies realize their vision. We develop things and scale them. On the render side, we do everything. We uh, do all the R&D and sourcing and scale up, but we also do the packaging and the production, the filament and the sales and marketing. We, we built a brand new food company, the purpose of which is to bring ideas for beverages, snacks, sweets, everything in between from chefs all around the country under the roof of one brand. So that's Pilot R&D and Render. And so the co-founders of Render are the same, co- uh, same group of co-founders that you created Pilot with. Same team. We launched Render as almost like our in-house brand to allow us basically to have almost like a record company where, where we bring in chefs who we respect and, and who we've known for many years and we help to produce their ideas and, and broadcast them uh, to a greater public audience. Cool. And I think I was, I saw a YouTube video and I think it was uh, Dan Felder was there uh, as well. And you guys were talking about a really like advanced version of kimchi. Uh, and it, it was, it was just, <laughs> yeah, it was very, very cool to, to see that. Uh, and really, cause you were you're talking about the science behind it. Um, so we're talking about like a new food technology and when a new food technology comes to market, in what ways do chefs adopt that technology? And in this scenario, are they the first to try something new or are they last to try something new? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, I would actually propose to spin it on its head where I think that most new food ideas come from chefs originally. Chefs are very open-minded and, and they are frequently early adopters of new techniques or ideas or principles or whatever comes in. But 
I would say more often than not, it's it's the everyday creativity of thousands of chefs around the world executing food and uh, touching it and feeling it and probing it and pushing it to places where it hasn't been before that gives rise to new food trends in the first place. My partners and I often talk about this runway model of food where chefs are very similar to the couture designers. And what you may see at 11 Madison Park now probably ripple and echo across the food industry until you see it at a gas station 10 years from now. And um, yeah, chefs, chefs are ideal early adopters because they not only are constantly looking for new ways to push the envelope and explore new frontiers in food, but they have the ability to conceptualize innovative applications for things rather than just what's, what's recommended by the manufacturer. So that's, that's great. But the one caveat I would say is chefs are also great BS detectors when it comes to a, a flashy new idea that comes from Silicon Valley or some other center of innovation. Chefs are usually the first people who can question the actual applicability or brilliance of an idea. And if it passes their smell test, uh, it's, it's usually a pretty good indicator that there's, there's actually something there. Now to think about a new type of food, I would want it to come from the chefs. So that as a consumer, that's what I would want. So that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, one thing that's been talked about a lot in the scientific community, and now I think the culinary community, is clean meat. Uh, what are your thoughts on the current scientific advancements towards clean meat? And how could cooking with clean meat be different than cooking with uh, regular meat or meat that we consume today? Well, there has been more, more discussion around the development of clean meat in the past decade than obviously ever before in human history. So understandably, with all of the brilliant minds and uh, many, many dollars being invested in that space, there's been a lot of movement, a lot of uh, progression. Um, frankly, I think we're still very, very far from a commercially viable source of clean meat in any way that is compelling to me as a culinary scientist. That is not to downplay the, the, the miracles of biotech that are happening right now every day in all of these companies. When it comes to the question of how could cooking with clean meat be different than cooking from something that came from a pasture, I, I really think that that is it. That underscores the entire struggle is for clean meat to be truly effective. I don't think there can be a large difference between how it behaves and how something that came from a living organism behaves. Uh, at least not at the at the outset, because consumers, rightfully so, are going to be very wary of what this new wave of, of meat products is. And we have, because of the ways that our brains are built to process flavor and the reasons that we evolved these very specific senses in the first place, we've got a really, really good lie detector built into our face. And the, the potentially the biggest struggle, the, the highest mountain we've ever tried to climb as a species creating food is manifesting a meat product from something that is not meat that behaves exactly the same way as uh, something that a, a living intact organism makes. And so, yeah, we've a bunch of brilliant, innovative things have been done so far, uh, and there's a long way to go still. And that makes me think of, you know, we have clean meats, which are derived from stem cells, but then we also have a lot of companies now doing plant-based meats that are marketed towards the meat eaters. What do you think about those plant-based meat alternatives? I would say the same thing. Honestly, whether or not the, the source, the, the cauldron from which uh, a clean meat product has been conjured is a bunch of mixed and matched um, plant metabolites or whether it's coming from cell engineering, 
I think the 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 trick is still the same. You you need to create sensory parity for something that is an incredibly complex mishmash of enzymes and lipids and carbohydrates and uh, minerals and things breaking down and building up constantly. And the biggest uh, challenge that clean meat from whatever circumstance faces is that I, I don't know anybody out there that defends, at least in a public setting, that quote unquote factory farmed beef is, is great for anybody on any level, nor do I. And that said, the worst factory farmed cow butchered in the most industrialized possible way, that is the lowest quality shipped through the most faceless corporation uh, to be served in the lowest common denominator scenario, still biologically has a massive leg up on being beef versus a, a billion dollar company starting from scratch, if that makes sense. Like the most sophisticated bioreactor that exists on planet Earth for creating beef is a cow. And so whether we are trying to take the plant-based path to get there or whether we're trying to, to take a cell culture way to get there, we, we are trying to, to knit together a tapestry without even having much thread to start from. So uh, I'm not going to say that it's impossible or that it's something that uh, can't or should not be done. I think the main, the main point I always bring up here is that it cannot be underestimated the complexity of this task. And then from there, there's all the culinary realities of what we're going to do with it. So let's take a look maybe, you know, 50 years into the future. And let's say 50 years into the future, we do have uh, clean meat that is much closer to the cow than what we have today. We have this concept of creating designer meat, and that could potentially mean mixing beef with tuna or coming up with new meats. Uh, what do you think about from a culinary standpoint about this potential or this opportunity, if it's something you think about at all? It's funny you should mention the idea of if we could if we could create a Franken-meat that combines beef and tuna, uh, what would that look like? Uh, in the culinary world, 10 years ago, we had a version of that reckoning where uh, chefs got their hands on uh, transglutaminase, which is an enzyme that's frequently found in blood clotting. This enzyme's primary function is to knit together protein. So you can use it to help reinforce the integrity of a chicken nugget, or you can use it to attach salmon skin to a chicken breast if you wanted to. And a lot of chefs did that. And there was this moment of flash where people would take these really beautiful photos of uh, a nicely cooked chicken breast with these scales on it and so on and so forth. And then when people got down to actually tasting it, the biggest question was, okay, why, why do this? Apart from just a magic trick, why, why would you do that? What are you gaining? What was the, what was the evidence-based flavor reasoning for attaching a salmon piece of salmon skin to a chicken breast. And I think that is one of the one of the most cautionary tales in the food tech industry is you cannot hack your fish, cannot hack our ability uh, or the way that we perceive flavor. You can manipulate it and you can stretch it, but there are very specific rules that uh, that our our sense organs and our uh, higher order processing helps us to evaluate food. And I think that once you get into these questions of can you make a hybridized version of tuna and beef? The, the question that should almost precede that is, should you? And, and for me, something like tuna and beef, the answer, I would be incredibly skeptical about why that would be a good idea. Just from a perspective of tuna and beef have very different lipid contents, for instance. Uh, tuna does have a lot in common with beef. It has 
uh, a lot of iron in its muscle, for instance, which generates more scraps of, of broken down lipids that we associate with the pleasant gaminess of land animals. But I truly, from a culinary science perspective, I, I would see no benefit to combining those together. And I know that's, that's a, a common topic in a lot of the discussion around clean meat or, or uh, uh, animal-free products that are dairy or eggs or, or whatever it might be, is that we could have more ability to tailor and personalize and customize these animal products. I, I have yet to hear a really compelling argument as to something that could be customized that would be incredibly beneficial from a culinary perspective. And I still think that the notion that we're going to have clean meat that's convincing in any way uh, close to sensory parity with the real deal 50 years from now, I do think that's still a very optimistic view. But if we do, I think we're going to be busy reveling in the fact that it cooks exactly like a uh, skirt steak rather than already having made the jump to what if we crossed the uh, what if we crossed beef with tuna your description of the i guess the ingredients or the components of of each of those made me think of, of that in a, in a whole new light in, in ingredients in general uh, on a side note um your book ingredients i have ordered it i have not been able to take a look at it yet uh, but it's coming so i'm really excited to to dig deep into that oh awesome um Cool. So uh, one last question about clean meat uh, is that you mentioned, you know, chefs have been talking about clean meat since, you know, for, for the last 10 years. And I think in 2013, there was a lot of marketing around it. When chefs are talking about clean meat, uh, what are they calling it? Are they calling it clean meat? Are they calling it cultured meat, lab-grown meat? Is there a consistent name that they're using? I don't think there's a consistent name that, that chefs use to refer to not uh, whole animal derived meat products. One thing I, I would say about chefs is I think they have a leg up on a lot of the food tech world in terms of their knack for naming things well. A lot of times when you see something that is a cross between tofu and turkey, it's called tofurkey. Whereas a chef, rather than leaning on the crutches of a shared social or cultural perspective of, of something that we have, they have the ability to just talk about what a thing is. If you're, if you're going to be talking about something that's eggplant bacon, cool. They might describe it as eggplant cured in brown sugar, then smoked and dehydrated. So I, I think chefs in general, when they're talking about lab-grown meat or clean meat or whatever it is, they're going to talk about specifically what it is. They're going to say, what did you think of that burger that was made with uh, soy proteins? What did you think about those chicken nuggets that were grown in a test tube? I, I think they whatever it is, I don't know if they will adopt a single umbrella moniker. Right. And that makes me think of the wine tasting experience in that when you're trying a wine, but you don't you know, hear about all of the accents or notes in that wine, you might not be as excited about it. But if someone is telling you about you know, why this particular wine is different than the rest, then it actually becomes really exciting. So I can, I can definitely see that for food as well. Um, and so transitioning over to fine dining. So for fine dining experiences, a lot of times ingredients are taken and they're turned into something completely different. Currently, do chefs spend a lot of time working uh, in a lab outside of the kitchen? I mean, the kitchen is in many ways a lab itself. Uh, but are we seeing a lot of scientists slash chefs? We're seeing more scientists slash chefs than we ever have before. And I, it's something I'm really excited about. I think there, there for me at least, there was a, a very strange moment of disconnect when I got to grad school. It was the first time I'd entered the world of food science. I expected that world to be inhabited primarily by hybrids, by 
uh, either nerdy cooks or biochemists, engineers who are passionate about cooking. I thought there was going to be more crosstalk. And honestly, that that not been traditionally the status quo in the food science world. It's brilliant microbiologists and engineers and chemists who happen to be studying carbohydrates in a potato rather than something that's going on in petroleum. And I take I, I see a lot of issues with that. I think that uh, our, our food industry historically has reflected that the people who are developing the larger volume food products uh, had very little empathic connection with what makes food delicious in the first place. And so now that we have more crosstalk between chefs and scientists and there's uh, this beautiful burgeoning vocabulary that they're able to share, I think that our food system and, and our enjoyment of food is only going to benefit across every possible category. For this next uh, segment, we're going to try something new. We've never tried it before. I think it'll be fun. And what I'll do is, I mean, we'll, we'll also cut it so it's uh, nice and fluid, um, but it is... Rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Sure. And just kind of like single word answers. And so are you ready? Sure. Let's do it. Favorite single ingredient? Sumac. Favorite type of cheese? Bulgarian feta. Favorite comfort food? Bulgarian feta and flatbread. <laughs> CD2. I'm laughing because I okay. So are you um, also are you Persian? Half, half. Okay, that reminds me of the traditional Persian breakfast. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, that's exactly what it is. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, going into favorite city to eat in uh, Los Angeles. Favorite fast food Taco Bell. Favorite type of cookie? I don't really like cookies. And favorite cooking tool or kitchen appliance? A rubber spatula. Okay, th thanks for doing that. So we just a couple more questions here. You have experience not only as a food science expert, uh, but also as an entrepreneur. What advice do you have for our listeners that are interested in becoming startup founders or starting a food tech company? Advice for startup founders or food tech. Uh, the number one overarching piece of advice that I would give to anybody trying to found a food company, whether or not the word tech follows that is that your second or third hire needs to be a chef or somebody who understands intimately and empathically the mechanisms at work when we perceive flavor in food. We, my colleagues and I have seen way too many companies get millions of dollars of investment down the road before they remember that they need to be selling something that tastes good. And in the food world, if, if you're starting a food company, that in theory should be your only source of revenue. So front-loading people who know how to make food delicious, and those people can come from diverse backgrounds, but placing that with as high of a, a value perception as somebody who is expert in business or marketing or engineering should be at the top of your list. So earlier today, I was talking to a founder of a, uh, a company that creates cricket flour chips, so chips using cricket proteins called Chirp Chips. What do you think about cricket proteins in cooking and just insects in cooking in general? Do you think that it will be something that comes or becomes mainstream in the U.S.? I hope that insects will become mainstream in the U.S. So actually, one of, one of our first clients uh, when we founded Pilot was EXO, a, a cricket protein bar company. And so we have cooked extensively with crickets. We've made protein bars, sure, but we've made extruded pasta, we've made steamed buns, we've made 
uh, ferments with crickets. We've we've done a lot of cooking with crickets and insect flowers in general. Honestly, I think it will catch on in the U.S. only when every insect product on the market tastes delicious. One of the things that we've we've seen over and over again is that there will be cycles and upswells of consumer interest in a story, whether that story is sustainability or something that's more health motivated, but sustained staying power that separates a trend or a fad from a pivotal shift in the way that we eat in this country can only be brought about by something that tastes delicious. Because it does not matter how good of water stewardship a given product has, if it tastes like sawdust and plastic, uh, you're not going to capture enough of the public imagination to keep it going for years and years. That said, I believe there's 2 billion people on the planet that eat insects in a bunch of different ways. So I think another key and another interesting thing to watch for in the insect world is, for instance, in Mexico, the way that insects are approached has has a lot in common with the way that farmers and chefs in the U.S. will, will nerd out and become fans of specific types of herbs or fruits or, or fish or, or dairy. And so species-specific and name-specific recognition and, and adoration for certain types of insects, these certain type of ant that's uh, incredibly sweet and sour, and, and this ant coming from this farm is better than this ant coming from that farm. The more that we can do to separate insects from being just another commodity protein source, I think that will help provide the thought leaders and tastemakers with a broader palette of colors to paint with to capture the public imagination and, and win people over to eat more insects in the United States. Some of those mixtures or like you were mentioning, pasta, like these, these are starting to look really good. So um, it's really exciting to see them in the market. You can learn more about Ali Buzari by visiting www.alibuzari.com where you'll find information about his book, Ingredient, Unveiling the Essential Elements of Food and other great info. Uh, Ali, are there any last insights that you might have for our listeners today? Yeah, maybe three things. Uh, every scientist should know how to cook. Climate change is real and taste and flavor are not the same thing. Ali, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your insight on the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. Thank you. This was a blast. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode.